What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we're here and we're very excited to be with Lee Steinberg of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. If you guys Google him or check out his Instagram page, I guarantee you've heard of him, especially if you're a sports fan. Uh, and Lee, so great to be on the show here with you. Uh, and I was telling you right before we jumped on that we met about four years ago when I was in law school and you came to speak. And I was super inspired by your story and, you know, how you essentially turned, you know, your law career into this massive sports agency that you've created and this name that you've created not only for yourself but all the people that you've worked with and impacted uh throughout the years and so we're both excited to be here to share you know your journey from the very early days and up until now and what, what what's going on so um i guess we'd like to just kind of kick it off where was lee steinberg born and tell us about the early days you know as a young kid give us a little bit about a background so I grew up here in West Los Angeles, and uh, I had a grandfather who ran Hillcrest Country Club. Okay. And so Los Angeles Country Club didn't allow blacks, Mexicans, Jews, Catholics, or actors. This is the same LACC that exists today. The same, uh, the, the same LA uh, golf course yeah, that's yeah. The, above Century City. Yeah. So Hillcrest Country Club started uh, and became the maven for all sorts of entertainment figures. So when I grew up, my grandfather would play gin rummy every day with Groucho Marx, George Burns, Jack Benny, George Jessel. I have a picture of me sitting on Marilyn Monroe's lap. Wow. Well, not that I understood it then, but I shook hands with Sinatra. This is the new uh, right. I, I sat on I sat on Marilyn Monroe's lap. There you go. <laughs> uh, and um, I had an Elvis Presley autographed guitar, so uh, I had that. But my father had. Uh, turned away from a restaurant fortune and dedicated his life to teaching kids. So he raised me with two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to make a meaningful difference and help people who couldn't help themselves. Mm -hmm. So that led to uh, me attending UC Berkeley in mm -hmm. the late sixties, which was a turbulent time on the campuses. Right. And, I was student body president, and Ronald Reagan was governor, wow. and we used to uh, have confrontations because we demonstrated against the war in Vietnam, and he'd crack down. I learned everything I needed to learn about negotiating from dealing with governor then President Reagan. What, what, what was one of the main things you learned? I mean, I'm sure there was several stuff, but like, how did that even come about? <laughs> um he was the head of the Board of Regents, and at one point they tried to fire the chancellor at, at UC. So as a representative of the students, I was defending him, and Reagan sits and looks across the table from me and says, weren't you the same Steinberg who was arrested in 1960 for sitting in front of troop trains in Oakland? And I said, well, Governor, uh, I was about 10, and I was much closer to playing with toy trains than <laughs> sitting in front of troop trains, but that shows your usual adherence to yeah. veracity and fact. Well, that got it going. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but the first thing I learned was listening skills, which is people think suasion is the key to success in life, but it's actually the ability to listen carefully draw another person out and understand what their value system is, what they value, and then also 
be able to get into their heart and mind and see the world the way they see it. Mm-hmm. So if you can create enough space and comfort and trust around another person to get them to open up and peel back the layers of the onion, then you've got the opportunity to truly speak to issues and circumstances that are critical to them mm. and not just stay on the surface. Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like oftentimes uh, to that point, people maybe assume that others have, have that outlet already and have that person or that the, plenty of people in their life that they could be that open with and, and truthful with and, you know, emotional with, but that's not true. Like a lot of times there are people that are not, not within their immediate families or their friend groups that they could open up with. And that's someone that could be a business partner, could be their manager, could be their agent, could be anybody. Um, right. Well, it's the way to navigate your way gracefully towards life. It's the key to recruiting. It's the key to negotiating. It's the key key to being able to maintain client relationships. It really is uh, the key because you can waste so much time speaking to issues that are not important um, and figure out a generic approach to people as opposed to focusing in on who they really are and what they really Mm -hmm. want and need Mm -hmm. and what will fulfill them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And Lee, I know you said that, you know, your father had taught you really those two things. Like I'm sure he taught you more, but those two things that stuck out were you know, building the relationships, especially with family, plus you know helping others that can't help themselves. That obviously led you to Berkeley. That obviously led you to law school. Going into law school, you know, or even in college, did you have any idea what you wanted to do or be, or it was just kind of a blank canvas and you were just deciding to draw it as it came along? Well, my training was mostly in politics and being an activist. So it was trying to make an impact in the world in a positive way. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a criminal defense lawyer because I watched those television shows Mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And um, maybe I'll go into politics. Uh, I also had options to go into television news. There actually was a situation where they were trying to have a college student be the sideline reporter for ABC, which would be the first time they'd had a younger person do it. And it came down to me and one other fellow, and I was in law school at the point, so he he got the job. And um, so I didn't really, uh, wasn't really sure. I had offers in corporate litigation for the Alameda County DA's office, um, and uh, but I never got there. So... Did you, I guess, what, so, like, were you sort of laser focused on, at some point, being a lawyer? Like, you want, that's Oh, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer, and I always knew that I wanted to be in politics and be, you know, someone that, um, that, uh, had a, a real chance to change conditions that, that weren't wonderful, but, um, before I ever got there, I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm mm-hmm. at Cal, mm-hmm. uh, and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm, and one of the students was Steve Bartkowski, mm-hmm. the quarterback, and in 1975, he became the first player picked in the first round of the NFL draft. Wow. And, he, and you were friends with him. I, I had been his dorm counselor. also so read he, somewhere uh, you were the dorm counselor for Steve Wozniak. Is that right? Steve Wozniak was in the same dorm. Pre, right. Pre-Apple. Yes. And, wow. uh, and he was, he was, al- he, he was already <laughs> electronically sophisticated. Yeah, he, could, yeah. he could 
prank people by getting their phone to ring and there was no way to turn it off until you pulled it out of the wall. Wow. Uh, Brian Maxwell was there who went on and founded uh, Power Bar and mm-hmm. a wow. comedian, Bob Sarlot. And Power Bar, I just saw a couple days ago, just went, they just IPO'd or something. Yeah, it went public. Yeah, so um, crazy. So there was a lot of talent at, at that time, but... But there really was no well-founded field of sports agentry at that time. There was no negotiated right for a player to have a agent. Teams could slam the phone down and no say... No collective bargaining agreement? Nothing that had anything to do with agents. So uh, there was no career to aspire to. So Bartkowski asked me to represent him. And mm. there I was brimming with legal experience, never having practiced law. Yeah. And I had the first pick in the first round of the NFL draft. Yeah. And there was a World Football League competing against the NFL. And we got the largest rookie contract in history for him. And I had grown up in Los Angeles and gone to school at Berkeley where... Athletics were sort of kept in a certain balance. And we arrive in Atlanta at the airport the night before the signing, and there are Klieg lights flashing in the sky like for a movie premiere. A huge crowd's pressed up against the police line, and the first thing we hear is, we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and his attorney have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live. Wow. Wow. So, um, and sorry, I, this is right. Like you had graduated law school at this point. Nine, yes. And this was like the first thing you did after you graduated I, law school. I had passed the bar. I traveled around the world for a year and a half. Never I worked came, at a law firm. Never just wow. came back and boom. So I saw then that athletes were the subject of idol worship and veneration in communities across the country. And I thought, well, here's a career where if I have them retrace their roots and go back to the high school community and set up a a scholarship fund or a church, boys and girls club, and then the college level where the alums, after all, are um, fixated to the university through the football and basketball program, um, and have them set up a scholarship where Troy Aikman endowed a full scholarship at UCLA and just gave them a million dollars, And then at the pro level, if we set up charitable foundations that had the leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders on a board, we could design a program that would tap into each athlete's heart and some cause they'd like to tackle. So the running back work done of Tampa and Atlanta uh, just put the 175th single mother and her family into the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and outfitting it. So mm-hmm, uh-huh. that became the core philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it's more so, um, you know, designing a way for athletes to have an impact outside of just their sport and their field and really yeah. build that community around. Exactly. Them. And to be role models. So you take an issue like domestic violence. So I had Lennox Lewis, the heavyweight boxer, cut a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. Mm. And he could permeate the perceptual screen that a young person puts up against authority figures and resists them. But if Lennox Lewis is saying it. Yes, because you got this big macho guy (laughs) and he's able to impact disaffected uh, young people. And it's interesting because it's, you know, you always talk or you kept talking about how one of the main things was you wanted to make an impact and, you know, through politics, but it almost seems like because you didn't end up going that route, your mission statement almost stayed the same, right? It was the fact that 
you wanted to now impact the world and certain issues through this vehicle of sports and through the athletes, the athletes that you were representing, right? Yes. So we could set up an anti-bullying program mm -hmm. that had pro athletes talking to college athletes and together stimulating high school athletes uh, for tolerance ra rather than being the bullies themselves. And they could change the culture of a high school real quickly mm. or the environment. I created something called the Sporting Green um, Alliance, which had a sustainable technology in wind, solar, recycling, resurfacing, and water taken to stadium arenas and practice fields to drop carbon emissions and energy costs and transform them into educational platforms. Mm -hmm. So the hundreds of millions of people that go to games could see a waterless urinal or solar panel and think about how to integrate that into their own home or business. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like when you first started off and, you know, out of law school, you're obviously like a fresh young attorney and you haven't had a lot of perhaps real life experiences representing anybody in sports yet. What were some of those early challenges that you faced, you know, dealing with the different leagues or because I know you were involved with what football, basketball, baseball, I mean, here you are boxing. with the first pick. Like, how did you, how did you, how are you confident in yourself? And like, what, what are the things that you... I guess maybe resources that you turn to to be like, I, I know what I'm doing. Like, I can I can handle this. So in a negotiation, the real question is whose reality is going to prevail? Mm -hmm. Now, if you have arbitration or you have a judge or someone who's going to set it down or you have a salary cap, there's structure. But when you have the first player, mm -hmm. how can you establish the reality? So I looked at the revenue flow that would come to a team. I looked at the chance that a player could increase attendance or he could increase their marketing off the field and tried to tap into that. So instead of just walking in and saying, I want, we want this much money because we want it. Um, we tried to put together a rational, uh, analysis of what, mm -hmm. made sense from that standpoint. And when you say we, you and the player, myself, that was just me at the start. Now I have partners. Uh, I have a great young uh, yeah. partner named Chris Cabot. But um, at the beginning, it was how can I make an argument that's going to appeal to a general manager who then might take the research packet I put together and hand it to an owner? So instead of just saying, here's what the market is, we could show them mm -hmm. uh, what made sense. So it's always about trying to appeal to the best in the other person. Right. And then if you can put yourself in their heart and mind, it's why will this signing benefit you? Why will it benefit your franchise? What um, can you do to maximize the value? Mm. Um, you, had, you had said like back then the climate of the sort of sports agent world was, wasn't really there. Like there wasn't much happening. Um, when you, when you became an agent, um, what, I guess, what was that era like in the space? And was there anyone that you were look, sort of looking up to in terms of, I want to be like that guy? Well, there really Nicole? weren't many models. Yeah. And the truth of the matter was that 
like I said, teams could just hang up the phone. So there was a level at which it was like dignified betting. Mm -hmm. What changed everything was free agency. So there was no free agency in football till 1993. Mm -hmm. uh, baseball started earlier and so did uh, basketball. But right. when players actually had the ability to escape and test the free market, um, it changed the dynamic because for the first time, teams had to compete. Yeah. If you signed a contract in the NFL back in the 70s or 80s, at the end of it, the team had an option for one more year at a 10% raise. So if you wanted to play football, you either took the offer they gave you or you played out your option, but there was nothing at the end of it but another option. Mm -hmm. So there was never any freedom. Um, what changed that was new leagues, so when the USFL came along in football, I had Steve Young as a client, and he got the leverage of having two leagues bid on themselves. Or Warren Moon came back to the NFL, and because he'd been in Canada, he was a total free agent. Mm -hmm, but yeah. um, I learned early that the real battle in sports couldn't be labor versus management. Mm -hmm. And I told owners we're doing this wrong. Instead of having acrimonious negotiations that, push away fans because an athlete's saying, I can't live on $7 million. You know, I have to have 10. <laughs> Instead of having acrimonious collective bargaining agreements where it was billionaires against millionaires, I said, let's realize that our competition, if you're the NFL, is against the NBA, Major League Baseball, Walt Disney World, home box office, and every other, other experiences. Other Entertainment. Uh, discretionary entertainment spending. Yeah. So let's build the brand. Let's right. uh, l let's get together and talk about how we blow out TV contracts and create massive stadiums. And yeah, and, it's, and it's a world that's always changing, right, with new rules, new regulations, just new, I mean, even new sports like the UFC and coming in. Right. like all. So it's kind of like you have to be creative in terms of the way, like you were saying with Vince Young, you kind of played this different game and it's just kind of whatever's happening at the time, right? You have to be aware of what's going on. And Well, and to understand how information is uh, translated. Right. Um, so when I'm growing up, you know, I fought my father for the sports section in the mm -hmm. daily newspaper every day. Um, and you had three television networks. And now all of a sudden you have 300 television yeah. networks and programming being done by, by Hulu and Amazon and Netflix. And you've got the whole Internet mm -hmm. and all these platforms. And so the social currency becomes how many Twitter followers mm -hmm. do you have, how many Instagram followers. And that's what. Uh, the way information flows. So it's understanding and adapting to that. Part of what we do... Like, sorry to cut you off, but players find out they've gotten traded like before they even... Like on Twitter, <laughs> before they even like get exactly. a call. Yeah. But I realized that if we could find the niches in sports that were unexploited, that in addition to representing athletes, we could create businesses that would flourish. So back in the 90s, I created something called Athlete Direct. This is pre-internet. You had to go on AOL to get on the internet. But I put uh, Michael CDN. <laughs> You've got Dial mail. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. But I put uh, Michael uh, Jordan, Ken Griffey Jr., and a bunch of football quarterbacks up. They did weekly diaries. They talked about uh, their charities. So it was like a blog post or it, like it, articles? It was a whole new website. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
But we put a couple hundred thousand dollars into it and oh, wow. sold it a few years later for $25 million. So oh. I'm always looking for the next new iteration. Yeah. Um, awesome. So, you know, you, you're fresh out of law school. You have this first pick in the NFL draft. How did that go? And how did, like, how did you start getting more and more clients um, after that? Like, what was, what was that story? So um, I focused on profiling the right type of young person that would be attracted to our firm because just going out and talking to every athlete in the world didn't work. Um, I needed players who were a little brighter, had a social conscience, were willing to be role models, came out of a strong family. So it took me a year or two to learn that talking to a mass of athletes didn't really work that what I needed to do, again, was to figure out that that small part of the market mm -hmm. that I might uh, especially appeal to. So I'd have better luck with them than uh, uh, anybody else. It sounds like most agents have the, the approach of, you know, um, they're going to they're gonna go after the ones that have the most talent, but you are coming in from this angle of like, I want to. I want to approach the the athletes that have the strongest foundation because I want to build a, a brand and a sustainable future for these athletes. Um, well, and fortunately, those two concepts coalesce at times, so yeah. that I had the very first pick in the first round of the NFL draft eight different years. Um, but here's what I know: I know that if you have the right athlete with the right character, that person's going to overperform. And we'll have the right work ethic and we'll have the ability to um, uh, excel in critical situations. So the question is, what do you do as an athlete? You're a quarterback. You've thrown two interceptions. The, you've thrown a couple interceptions. The, the crowd is booing you. The game's getting out of hand. Um, and now can you compartmentalize, adopt a quiet mind, and elevate your level of performance, even in all that adversity, to mm -hmm. take a team to and through the, the Super Bowl. Did you find that that methodology, that almost like that hypothesis that you had early on about what you just explained was true? I mean, like, were the folks that actually did have a stronger foundation end up performing better? Because, I mean, again, like the sports leagues when if you make a team like you're probably you know the best of the best already and so there's competition beyond folks that are like you know that have a good foundation so i'm you, curious as to what if, you learned if, from that. if you take an nfl or nba or uh major league baseball draft what you'll find is that with all the scouting they do and with emphasis on the testables which is how fast can someone run a 40 how uh, I can bro uh, what I kind of broad jump, what kind of vertical leap, that at the end of the day it comes down to uh, players with great work habits who study and dedicate themselves for whom it's uh, critical. They also have personalities where, again, in crisis, and it's a good learning experience for us all because we're all going to have um, adversity in life. Mm -hmm. Are you resilient can you come back? Mm -hmm. Can you just file away the negative experience and go right on? 
uh, and not only endure, but prevail. Yeah. And I'm curious when you got an early, you know, when you started off and we've, you know, sat down, like Pat said, with hundreds of people at this point on this podcast and you hear all these different stories about, you know, when somebody started off, they were, you know, just lean, right? Like they weren't making a lot of money. They didn't have much money to start. I mean, was, was the finances a concern for you? Like the fact that perhaps you won't be making a lot of money early on, especially because you were being so picky in an, in a positive manner with your clients. Somebody else in that position might have been like, I need money. I'm going to go and represent as many people as possible and try to get as much money coming in as possible. So I want, I'm curious about what your thought process was at that time. Well, first of all, I began with my office being my parents' card room. So okay. I was sitting in a room in their house. Um, I had a phone, and back in those days, they were rotary, so you dialed. I was my own secretary, so yeah. if you called the phone, I answered. Let's, let's hear the but voice. Let's hear the you, voice. If you called it and <laughs> I was already on the phone, it would ring busy, yeah. something you couldn't explain to a younger person yeah, today. Yeah. It rang busy. Um, I typed my own letters. I did my own um, – uh, I would go to Kinko's cop copies for right. to copy right. things. So – I learned that fixed costs are a real danger in a startup. And so if you can keep fixed costs down, um, and you also had to learn techniques. So I could go recruit a player in Georgia, but guess what? I had to get on a plane to do it. If I could lock down SC and UCLA being in Southern California or Cal and Stanford because I had a second home in the Bay Area, that you could yeah. you could knock down all those costs. Right. Um, but did you feel like you were going to, or did you fear, I guess, that you would miss out on top talent because you did that, or it was just, I, I just no, can't the first, do it. The first a couple of years were really uh, tough. As a matter of fact, even though I had the first player in the draft and a big star quarterback, <clears throat> I got to the point. There's Elway you're talking about? or No, no, it was Parkowski. Oh. Um, I got to the point in 1977 where I had maxed out my father's credit cards. I had um, uh, the big airline was PSA. They had a hit squad looking for me. Hertz <laughs> rent a car, you know, uh, was looking for me. Um, and that year, Steve Bartkowski bought me a ticket to Atlanta, Georgia. And I went down to the rural south, Douglas, Georgia. And there was an offensive lineman made, made, named Mike Moonpie. Uh, Wilson, and there was one named Joel Cowboy Parrish, and they were good old boys. I signed Joel Cowboy Parrish. He happened to sign a ca uh, contract in Canada, and that fee allowed me to go on. Uh, after that, the economics became extraordinary, but my point was it's why resilience is always the key. Mm -hmm. You will get knocked back in life, but the point is, can you can you rise again like the Phoenix and uh, and be a top performance? And I know you've had definitely a lot of those moments in your life, like both professionally and personally. What is it that kept you resilient? What is it that gave you that hope that I'm at my lowest point, but I'm going to come back up? And if you have any examples that you could share with us, that'd be great. Because I think that well, whether you become a sports agent, whether you're a politician, anything. whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a business owner – this is like a very strong asset, right? Like I think some people call it grit, right? And I think 
resiliency is a part of grit. I think there's other factors that go into grit. Right. But I'm, I'm curious about, you know, your story. And I mean, that's why we do this podcast is we try to share these stories right. as lessons so, for people to take away from. So I had a long 35-year ride, which was meteoric. And so I'm, you know, they've done Jerry Maguire based on the time I spent yeah, with yeah. the director. I have two best-selling books. We have 62 first-round draft picks. I've got all the sports, our charities and community fairs are going great. Um, and a series of reverses happened in, in my life. Um, my kids were diagnosed with an eye disease. My father died of cancer. And uh, we lost a home to mold in Newport Beach. Um, and I started to experience problems in my uh, marriage. And um, I chose the wrong path. I drank um, alcohol to... <clears throat> sort of ease the pain. And I got to the point where eventually I was sitting on my father's uh, bed, deceased father. I had shut down my practice, given it to the younger players. And, uh, and I made a vow that I would uh, be a good father and I would be uh, sober. And I went off to sober living and I just dedicated my life to those two things. And so I'm now in my 10th year of continuous sobriety, and we've rebuilt this practice all over again. Mm -hmm. But you have to have the vision that somewhere in that barn filled with defecation, there is a pony mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. somewhere. That somewhere through all this wreckage, through all this disaster, through this darkness, there's a brighter day. Mm -hmm. And you have to have the inner belief that you can get there by following the right methodology. Mm -hmm. So it all came back. Well, first of all, congratulations on that 10-year anniversary. But also, you know, what was that pony for you? I mean, like, seriously, you know, when you're in that... And that I, think I had wonderful children who didn't apply for birth, right? We brought them on the earth, and I was responsible for helping them be stable and secure, and I was failing at that, and I needed to get back to that. And I was um, oblivious to my father's admonition that I make a difference in the world because I wasn't very functional at that mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had to go back to core values, mm -hmm. and uh, that if I never established a uh, sports agency again. If I never went out and gave speeches and wrote books and did the rest of it, I'd be a good father and I would be sober. And so, and with that, everything yeah. eventually came back. I guess going back, um, you sort of answered the question, but I'm, I'm also curious, uh, you know, this, this successful, mega successful career you ha you've had, if you can go back to before this even started, like you're, you're in law school and, and you're just getting yourself going, um, with all the craziness and how difficult it is to 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 establish your, yourself in any field, whether it's your own business or your you know in, in the sports world, uh, what would you have done differently? Like, how would you have gone about this whole thing differently? Um, I think I'd have formed the firm the same way. I think I would have stressed the same values. Um, I think that I had the illusion that. Nothing in business ever bothered me. I expect there to be reverses. With all the careful planning you do, something will go awry. There will be reverses. I don't expect to sign every player. I don't expect every situation to work out perfectly. Um, 
But I did think that I had the power to put a roof over my family, that I had the power to protect my father, that I had the power to protect my kids from getting the from blindness. Mm -hmm. And that was an illusion. And uh, I, I needed to understand that that you can walk through personal tragedy without finding a crutch to lean on and that it will be okay. And again, it was nothing in business. I've been overwhelmed a million times, but I just consider that part of it. But mm -hmm. it was the vulnerability to my family uh, members and my inability to get the right perspective about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fantastic story. And I think, you know, not a lot of people get to have a movie inspired by them, right? Uh, not a lot of people have made that sort of impact very early on in their careers even. And I think that, you know, you have had a, obviously a very successful and very long career that's still going on and we can't wait to see what's new because I feel like you've almost reestablished, you know, what you were doing. But at the time that Jerry Maguire came out well, and we well, were talking it's, about this. It's nice to have the hottest player in pro football. Now. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Got that's you. very true. Um, who has this guy's same name. Um, we won't, we won't say his name, uh, <laughs> but when we, and we've both seen the movie and when we were watching it again, because when we kind of booked this, we're like, Oh, we got to rewatch it. It was almost amazing to see that there was never really a lot of talk about sports agents or like sports in general from the business side of things, right? Like it's always the actual players or the sports or the teams, but kind of seeing the business end of it is very interesting, right? Talk to us a little bit about the process of that film being made and your role and, you know, how much of it was true and how much of it was applicable to your life. So, um... I got a call from Cameron Crowe, a film director and writer, mm -hmm. back in 1993. Mm -hmm. He had done a film called Fast Times at Richmond High, which I thought was very funny, and had done another one called Say Anything, uh, which had John Cusack holding up a, a, a boombox. Yeah. And he wanted to know if he could follow me around to pick up atmosphere for... Uh, a film which would involve a sports agent. So he started following me in 93. He went to the NFL draft when I had the first pick. He went to the league meetings where I was showing off a free agent named Tim McDonald. He went to Pro Scouting Day uh, USC. He came to games with me. He spent time in my office. He um, came to our Super Bowl party. Um, he sort of shadowed me. And while we were doing it, I told him a lot of stories, uh, just story after story. So then I became technical advisor, so my job was to vet the script to make sure that the willing suspension of uh, <clears throat> disbelief that holds you in a picture so you don't think the dialogue is phony, you don't think the yeah. people are stereotyped, didn't get broken. And then he assigned me actors like Cuba Gooding Jr., mm -hmm. who I took down to a Super Bowl and made him pretend he was a wide receiver all <laughs> week, um, and put him in role. So I had the uh, job of trying to speak to some of the actors about what the world they're entering is like. And there was Tom Cruise. And, and, and Tom uh, Cruise was playing you. Oh, I mean, Tom Cruise allegedly was, was playing a sports agent who was inspired was, by you. He was playing Cameron Crowe's great creation of yeah, got it, Jerry got Maguire. It, got it. But um, 
And then I actually had to show the quarterback, uh, played by Jerry O'Connell, how to throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have football there. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, Cameron was out in Palm Desert at the league meetings, and I was showing off a free agent defensive back named Tim McDonald around the different teams. And Cameron watched the process, and then at one point they went upstairs to Tim's uh, hotel room, and Lou Dobbs and Moneyline was on in the background. And Cameron said to Tim, well, what are you looking for this in this experience? And Tim said, I'm looking for someone to show me respect. I'm looking for a team to finally show me some winning. I'm looking for a team to show me the money. Mm. So is that where the line came from? Well, if you talk to Cameron and Tim, they have a different perspective on it, but but it came somehow out of uh, all that exploration. Yeah. I'm curious. So um, obviously, if someone was to Google your name and see all the folks you've represented throughout your career, you know, they'll be wowed. But um, and, and, you know, the names are just never ending. But is there anyone that you always wanted to represent that you never like got a chance to? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Tiger Woods would have been a sensational uh, client. There are certain transcendent athletes that really had the power to change the world. Yeah. And some of them have done it and some of them shy away from it because they're worried about their business uh, interests. Uh, I remember at one point Lance Armstrong called me and I'm like, what am I going to do with a live strong? What am I going to do with you know someone who rides bikes? You know, <laughs> and the famous last words. But yeah. um, there's always uh, players that you wanted to have yeah. didn't get or or came to you and you didn't take. Yeah, you know it's amazing now that he brought up Lance Armstrong. I can't believe how big of a campaign live strong was. Those yellow bracelets were like right. I mean, they 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 made such a big impact. Yeah. Um, you know, and kind of going off the topic of impact, I was telling uh, someone earlier that when I went, so Pat and I both went to USC, and USC does a pretty good job of, you know, staying relevant, I think, with culture and sports and everything like that. And I took a couple of sports-based classes, and one of them that really kind of has had an impact on me till this day was called Sports and Social Change. It was a, a class taught by Professor Durbin. And he brought in different players. I know Kevin Love was one of them. He brought in different uh, agents, managers, uh, you know, athletes from different sports. And we studied different parts of history that, or different parts of sports that had an impact on history. And that that was something that really fascinated me. And because it was almost like the start of the sports and the athlete as an influencer, right? And it's a big topic now of you know all these athletes are influencers. How do you see that playing a role in your business currently, but also? when you were starting off, that these athletes are more than just an athlete, right? Like LeBron's famous words, or, you know, I'm sure it was said before that, but that they are truly not only a business, but they are people that have influence over others. Their actions, their words carry beyond just them. Like they are their own microphone. So we're able to target very specific social ills in the world and use the high profile of athletes and their iconic nature to deliver messages, and they can alter the course of history. I always thought that if uh, Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods had tried, they could have reversed AIDS in Africa. They could have done all sorts of things, but but they took a more conservative uh, approach. You look at the comments LeBron James just made about the international situation. Had uh, he made the comments, I support the protesters in Hong Kong, mm. 
it could have had a real impact Massive. instead of you know defending the Chinese government. Um, so athletes have always had the ability. I helped organize athletes for Obama, and um, athletes have During the ability. His presidential campaigns back in two thousand eight. Yeah. Um, Athletes have the ability to permeate, as I said, the perceptual screen that people put up, and they won't listen to a commercial thing. They won't listen to something else, but they will listen to an athlete. Mm -hmm. And so we try to use that power for good. Why do you think that is? Why do people want to listen to athletes? I mean, Because we all grow up aspiring every male and yeah. now increasing numbers of females we <laughs> all grew up aspiring to be you know a, an athlete sports is uh, inextricably intertwined with all of our identities yeah. and uh, you know there's a fascination that we have and you realize at a certain age that you don't have the skill set to, mm -hmm. to really excel at that level, but you retain your love of sports. Mm -hmm. And uh, pro football right now is dominating America. It's not only the most popular sport, it's the most popular television show. I know that there's been a lot of, you know, issues that, you know, even with the NFL, whether it was like Colin Kaepernick kneeling or anything else that's been happening as of late that arises from there. Do you encourage athletes to take a proactive approach yes. to being, you know, these social change leaders? First, I encourage them to educate themselves so that they actually understand an issue they would be speaking out on. So they're factually correct. They get the context. They understand it. The worst thing in the world is to just be out there spouting off without actual information. Mm -hmm. But yes, I encourage it because the enemy of, of athletics' second career is um, self-absorption. In other words, there's a tendency for athletes to the whole world revolves around them. They're the center. So I always had athletes walk into a banquet and network reach out to other people, try to make an impact of other people. When they set the charitable and community programs on, they're seeing themselves as more than an athlete. Mm -hmm. I think it's appropriate. I think it's a hard thing to use the stadia or arenas themselves as the protest point because, you know, if you can protest over uh, killing of uh, unarmed civilians, you can also protest over abortion. You could protest over any right. issue, and all of a sudden – the whole illusion of, of uh, fun and excitement gets taken away. Right. But athletes can speak at rallies. They can set up uh, charities and foundations to address serious issues. Mm. They can um, go on Twitter. They can do all sorts of things to make a difference. And I think what we're trying to do is empower them. So, you know, I've got what I would do is, let's say I had players on the 49ers. I would say to them, can you think of anything proximate to Santa Clara that's an interesting business? So, well, just the biggest um, venture capital community yeah. anywhere yeah. in high tech. Yeah. So it's not by chance that Brent Jones, the retired tight end, formed a multi-billion dollar uh, hedge fund or right. Steve Young bought and sold multiple companies. Three of the players I have are... Uh, Minority owners of actual NFL teams. Yeah. Um, what's something that people, folks who, who aspire to be sports agents, should know about being a sports agent that, that's maybe not so obvious? Study psychology. 
Um, in other words, athletes don't want someone who under knows what the stats were from the 1934 yeah. World Series. You need specific skills to add to their life. Hmm. I love that. Um, I know. I know you're still, you know, very much in the game, but you're also working on other stuff on the side, other projects. Tell us more about what you're working on. Um, so we have an educational, yeah, uh, outreach. People go to business school, law school, um, all sorts of uh, uh, sports marketing, and they learn the principles of those fields, but no specifics. So what I've tried to do is, is uh, along with my partner Chris Cabot and, and Julia Farron, is to create a uh, educational process where part of it's a sports career conference, which we're having um, in November here in uh, Los Angeles. When's Pepperdine. the date? November, I think November 16th, 16th yeah. at Pepperdine. And people can sign up by going to SteinbergSports.com. Uh, um, sports career conference and you have one hour that's uh media figures talking about being a sportscaster or a sports writer or, or working on the internet you have one hour that's how to work for a team a league a conference an athletic department you have one hour which is sports entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and sports philanthropy you have one hour that's sports marketing and branding. So you can come to it, and not only do you get to hear the experts in every field, you get to um, interact with them. So we have a mentoring hour. So mm -hmm. it's really uh, extraordinary for any young person aspiring to a career in sports. I love that because um, something that's happened more so recently in for example, at USC, there's like the Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre Academy, which is like a combination of like four different schools. Like it's the art school, the business school, the engineering school, and it's like it's this interdisciplinary program. interdisciplinary right. program. And those are obviously you know becoming bigger and bigger because, like you said, like the first thing that someone thinks about when you know wanting to be a sports agent is not psychology; it's probably law or something along those lines. But right. it's kind of this thing that can bring together multiple fields specifically around. The sports. So, for space. example, we do a s agent academy yep. that teaches specific skills, and we have the uh, attendees get up, and they have to recruit an actual athlete in in teams of agents. They have to negotiate a contract either as a agent or a general manager. Mm -hmm. They have to create an app. They have to do all sorts of things, and we give them specific skills there. And then we have an online course, um, again, on our website, which has got 85 modules and the biggest experts in all the fields. So you can listen to Jacob Ullman tell you about how to get a job as a broadcaster at Fox Sports. And so you can go online. So the goal is to create a new generation of ethical, principled people that are um, are going to change the face of sports. Lee, we, we asked some of our listeners that knew you and that didn't know you and that knew that you're a sports agent about what they would want to hear if they were the ones interviewing you instead of us. Uh, one of the main questions that we got was, what are your thoughts on the college athletes and about the payment of college athletes and what that should be like? I know there, I know California, in fact, Gavin Newsom just wrote or signed a law uh, that would allow that to happen. But I'm very curious as somebody that's been in the industry for 45 plus years, someone who hasn't necessarily been on the political side of things but has seen it, what are your overall thoughts and opinions and you know forecasts on what's going to happen? We ought to allow every athlete 
who comes out of high school and aspires to be a professional athlete to go and get drafted if they want to, go directly from high school, never go to college. I venerate college education and know it would be better for every young person, but you get a whole group of um, of people that are on the campus just as a way station to the pros. They're never going to graduate. They're never going to take the right courses. They don't mm-hmm. have any interest. Mm-hmm. They're just there because they're forced to be there. Mm-hmm. And then we have a scholarship system that works against athletes from disadvantaged uh, families. So right. an athlete from a disadvantaged family may take that scholarship check and send some home to their parents. And then you stick them on a campus like UCLA, which is in the middle of Bel Air and Homeby Hills, and they can't afford the housing, they can't afford to have a car, and they live at a lower rate than their non-athletic peers. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so they get resentful. And what happens is they end up taking money from agents and from alumni. Um, we should fix that system. We don't need them to live like the Sultan of Brunei, mm. but we now have something called attendance clauses, which help give three to $5,000 to players at certain mm-hmm. campuses. And SB 206 right. would allow a certain group, the California law, to... to uh, market their likeness, um, and go ahead and do endorsements. Now, it would only be the select few who have enough brand, but right. you'd be surprised. It might be an Olympic swimmer who's on campus. Right. It might be. And he, and, uh, yeah, it and, won't necessarily clearly to be a college football quarterback, but there might right. be people with enough brand. <clears throat> and then we're allowing them to supplement their income so they can have a car, they can have mm. access. I right. mean, the NCAA rules – Somebody goes in to call their parents at home, and, and it's uh, to the athletic department, it's a violation. And I've heard players who are still living on top ramen, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, the NCAA is making over a billion dollars a year, and college athletics making $14 billion. Yeah, I think the NCAA should just be gone completely, like completely revamped into something else. But yeah, um, no, it's, you bring up a great point because, you know, the, the argument is often – well, these kids are getting a free college education, but the NFL is requiring them to go to college for three years to then be eligible, or two, two three years, to, to be eligible to go to the NFL. So it's kind of like they have no other choice, right, if they want to go to the NFL. No, they and they, again, they, they feel resentful, so right. people can argue, but they're getting all the benefit of this magnificent scholarship. Yes, yes, if you want to be an actual college graduate. The people who want to be, st- <clears throat> if you, <clears throat> you change the rules, it would be real student athletes on campus. But Lee, just to play devil's advocate here, because you know I went to law school too, and you know that's what we did in class all the time. Um, wouldn't this open Pandora's box for other non-athletes who are doing things that are monetizing? So, for example, if I'm an entrepreneur at USC's campus and my business starts becoming a very you know lucrative business, and I'm launching this business and they're using my name in marketing and saying, oh, you know, Posh started this business and come join our entrepreneurship program. I'm now a celebrity too, just like these athletes, but I'm not getting paid. Why shouldn't I be getting paid for them using me to recruit other talent? Because for the athletic program but you can't. Well, but you can be paid. You can go as a eSport athlete. You, you can be ninja on Fortnite mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and monetize yourself. Every other student has the ability to work during the school year. They can work during the summer. And if you create a brand that's good enough and you can uh, yeah. figure out the revenue flows, right. God so, bless you. So do you think the issue is that there's this regulatory body beyond the universities that's not allowing them to yes. do it? So you think that the universities would be on board with paying athletes? Well, they would have to competitively. Right. Um, and again, you say the word pay and people, oh, oh my yeah, God, I mean, we're, millionaires, we're like, destroying. Yeah. No, we're just talking about <laughs> giving them enough money like a stipend. to not worry about money and focus on academics and their sport what they're there for yeah. yeah i think i think for me i think the biggest issue is going to be you know you have the smaller college and the smaller schools like you know you have like a davidson for example where you have steph curry that went there right what are they going to be able to pay steph curry that steph curry could get paid at usc and now it becomes like this war between universities of who's going to pay more and now it's going to be like major league baseball you have these big schools with big pockets and deeper pockets i, and the I small don't ones. mean to disillusion you but it's sort of like that now yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It's just it's. I think they've created that illusion that it's not, which is I think the NCAA is doing. Yeah. Someone someone asked, uh, "What's the key to getting someone to trust you?" Besides, I guess besides being a good listener and and understanding, is there is there anything else? I guess maybe in the sports space, it's fine to talk. Yeah. About all the things that you can do for someone, but what builds trust is actually doing them. Being reliable, being accountable, um, you know, uh, following up. And so it's uh, actual activity that establishes a pattern of trust. Lee, I'm curious. You've been a father. You've been an attorney. You've been a sports agent. You've been a director's, you know, technical. What did you call the title? A technical, technical advisor. advisor. If, you, if I had to ask you what is the one job or the one thing you've loved being considered what would it be um running a foundation that deals with climate change um, because i think it's the existential threat for young people the oceans are high flooding is happening different places the soul uh, the arctic ice cap has broken up we have uh are destroying uh, the jungle and the rainforest um, and changing the equation forever. So when people say, oh my goodness, the earth is imperiled, the earth is not imperiled. We're just one species who's been here for a minute moment of time. Yeah, It's human beings that are imperiled and our ability to live and Every generation before mine is handed down to their kids a higher quality of life, and climate change threatens that quality of life. I mean, the illusion that you'll drive a um, uh, a car on fossil fuel in 20 years not going to happen. I mean, the you think you'll eat a piece of beef when it takes a massive amount of crops to feed a finite amount of cows? No. It, there are all sorts of changes that are happening. And if I had a magic wand, it, it would be whether it's the national debt or climate change mm -hmm. to have people finally address some of the issues that are mm -hmm. threatening our kids. Yeah, there's no question people should be more mindful of what's, what they're doing to the environment and Really, how long can this, can this right. sustain? Like, you know, you want your kids to have a, a really good right. quality of life, ideally better than yours. Right. Um, so, 
Lee, thank you so much for your time. And I think that the, one of the biggest takeaways from, you know, both of us and for, you know, those listening, hopefully is that, you know, in whatever work that you do, I think it's important to have a purpose bigger than just the work you're doing. And that hopefully the work that you are doing, whether it's for the environment, whether it's for, you know, nature, or whether it's for anything else for that matter that you're passionate about, have a purpose and try to make an impact, you know, using your work and your career as the vehicle. So thank you for being an example of that and, you know, helping us learn that and also spreading the message to those that are listening and beyond that that's something that they should aspire to do. So we appreciate your time and your... It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Lee.